Father God, we come before you this afternoon, and I know, Lord, that there are a myriad number of ways in which the people here may be struggling, may be wondering what you are doing, God. I ask, Lord, as we turn to your word, that by your spirit we might have the eyes to see, eyes of faith, Lord, to hear and to receive from you the good news that you are always at work for our good and for your glory. So we thank you for that, and we pray that your word would minister to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you this afternoon. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. And if uh, you're wondering why we always say that, it's because I'm sick of people calling me James on accident. Just kidding. Um, No, it's because if you're new or or newer, you're visiting, we're uh, glad you're here. We want to get to know you. And for those of you who aren't new, who've been here for a while, we always love to be with you worshiping together. I'm going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you could turn your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 20. We're continuing our study through the book of 2 Samuel, and we are very close to the end. Um, As you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like things in your life didn't go as expected? Have you ever thought to yourself, this wasn't what I thought it would be like? I remember a few years after becoming a pastor and before we had planted this church, um, I was having dinner or something with a group of friends who were part of the young adult group that I had helped pastor for a number of years. And um, as we were eating, we began to reminisce and we were talking and, and one of the ladies who was there, she's a few years older than I, uh, someone asked her, do you remember when uh, Jesse... Or and Eric became pastors at the church, and she said, yeah, I do. I remember that because I remember thinking, no way. Right? These guys are idiots. Okay, that's what, uh, I don't know if those are her exact words, but that's what I heard. Uh, she was saying, I couldn't believe that these immature kids became my pastor. And I had to admit in that moment that I was a little bit surprised. It wasn't what I had expected. But I also realized as I was hearing her words that she was expressing the same thing. And now we are on good terms. She uh, loves us. And I don't think she still thinks that we are immature idiots. Um, But it wasn't what she was expecting as well. And this is just a silly, silly example of unexpected circumstances. But I don't mean this question to make light of the fact that for all of us, We come to life and we have hopes and dreams and expectations and so many times we get into it and we find without fail that things don't go exactly the way that we had expected. Right From the couple that was expecting by now to have a family and yet year after year and decades have passed and yet they don't have this blessing that they had always hoped for. Or the person who raise their children in a certain way, hoping to teach them about the Lord, and yet every time you see them now, it brings you simultaneous joy and sorrow because you know that their hearts are far from Him. Or the person who started this business venture believing this is what God had given them to do, this new job or this new situation or circumstance or opportunity, but it hasn't gone as planned. In fact, things are much worse than you ever thought they would be. Well, if you ever felt that way, that things didn't go as expected, I think this chapter in the book of 2 Samuel is for us this afternoon. 
In this chapter, we find the end of the official narrative that describes for us the reign of King David. Now, um, it's not the end of the book, but it is the end of the official kind of um, summary of what he did, the highlights of his reign as king. And the reason we know that is if you're looking at your Bible, in the end of this chapter, starting in verse 23, there is a list of the officials of David's kingdom. And I'm just going to read that. We are going to go through the whole chapter, but um, because we're not going to spend as much time explaining this, I'm just going to get to it now. Verse 23, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Carathites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahalud was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. And this is the second time in the book of 2 Samuel we've seen a list of officials that correspond to David's reign. And so you can think of it this way. If you were reading kind of a biography of, of presidents or something like that, uh, maybe someone would say when Ronald Reagan became president, this was his secretary of state and treasury and, and defense and so forth. And this is the end when the reign ended. When Ronald Reagan got out of office, this was who was serving in his cabinet. That's what's going on here. Now, like I said, there's more to add, but this is the final official chronological chapter of a long and action-packed reign of Israel's second king, the one chosen by God to be the patriarch of the line of kings from which God's ultimate ruler would come. And it's been quite the ride. There is triumph, but there is also great loss and pain. And I think as you read this chapter, what we'll see is that David's reign was pretty unexpected. Right, you probably wouldn't have, have, have guessed that this is where it would have gone if you had just watched the highlight reel of him taking down Goliath. And so I ask again, have you ever felt like things didn't go the way you expected? And if so, what are we supposed to do with that? That's the question we're going to answer today through this chapter as we see three characters in this story that teach us how we should respond to the unexpected. And the first character that we see starting in verse 1 is this character, Sheba, the son of Bikri, who shows us that one way that people tend to respond to unexpected circumstances is with insurrection, okay, insurrection or rebellion against the Lord. So point one, when faced with the unexpected, sometimes we respond with insurrection. Let's start in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now, let's stop and get our bearings here in the story. What has just finished in the book of 2 Samuel is a rebellion led by Absalom, who was one of King David's sons. And David had just finished uh, dealing with that. Absalom had been defeated. He had been killed by Joab, the general of David's army. And David had been welcomed back by the northern tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah now as the rightful king. But at the end of the last chapter, chapter 19, there was an argument going on. There was a disagreement between those other tribes and the tribe of Judah, where both of them wanted to have the honor of kind of bringing him back to the throne in Jerusalem. And David had sided with the Judahites, the people of Judah, his own tribe. And so there was this bickering, there was this power struggle, there was this disagreement. And at the end, the people of Israel, 
the other tribes of the nation, they felt like David was favoring his own tribe. And this leads right into chapter 20. At this point, with one rebellion just barely put out, a man named Sheba begins to speak. The Bible says he was a worthless man, which can also mean a troublemaker. And he blows the trumpet and says, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Now, what's going on here? It's a call back to independence from the Lord's anointed. A call back to to kind of go back in time, to get away from David, to, to give up on this plan of the Lord's anointed. And when I hear in this great call, him, him saying, we have no portion in David, what I read is disillusionment with their king. We tried it this way. We tried to follow David, but look what good it has done for us. And so he calls the people to insurrection, to rebel against David, to reject God's king, to reject God's plan, and to go back, each of them, to their own way. And it's kind of like that old saying, right? Out of the frying pan and into the fryer. You you probably weren't expecting that. One chapter, after one rebellion is put down, another one begins to burn. Now, it might be easy to think that Sheba is just acting out of jealousy, or he's just kind of a, a troublemaker, and he's just someone who doesn't want David or any king. But the narrator wants us to see that it's more than that. Okay, Sheba is a troublemaker. He is a worthless man. But there's more. There are reasons why he is disappointed with David. And there are reasons why he feels like he is done with this king. And Sheba doesn't get a lot of talking time. But if you look at verse 3, the narrator adds for us an interesting course of events that reminds us of why exactly the people were so disappointed. Verse 3, And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. This verse, which seems almost out of place, is a reminder from the narrator about what exactly is going on. David had these concubines who he left behind when Absalom came and took over Jerusalem. And if you guys remember the story, Absalom committed great evil by going in to his father's concubines, by basically um, taking them from him. And it was kind of a, a fulfillment of the prophecy of judgment that Nathan had given David all those chapters ago. That because of his sin with Bathsheba and taking Uriah's wife, that the same thing would happen to his family and his house. And so these women who are left behind, who were uh, abused in this way, are now left in this state of widowhood, living without a future of a family anymore or, or, or having even much freedom. They're stuck in this situation because of what David had done. Now, it's not all David's fault. But what is the text telling us? Sheba's rebellion wasn't successful or fueled because Sheba was such a a charismatic guy. It's because David had made a mess and he was coming back from a mess he had created to a mess that he had made. And so we begin to understand where Sheba is coming from, even though he is a worthless man. We start to understand why his call to rebellion could be successful just days, maybe even hours 
after Israel had decided to bring David back. It's because of the reality of sin, the fallout of it, and how that had shaken the people's faith in God's king. I said Sheba shows us that one way we respond to disappointment and the unexpected is with insurrection. And how do we see this more clearly? Well, if you look at this explanation of who Sheba is, it's really interesting if you look at the text. Not because of what he does, but because of who he is. The text tells us a few things about Sheba. One, I already said it, he is worthless. Now, this term, worthless man, was used multiple times in the book of Second Samuel. But the first time we, we kind of see that in the book of Samuel is all the way back when Eli was the high priest. And we're told in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, that his sons were worthless men. Now, that's one clue. But secondly, Sheba is of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Benjaminite. And if you remember, who was from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, the king before David. So that's kind of two things. He's a worthless man bringing us back in the book. He is from Benjamin bringing us back to the tribe from which Saul came. And third, all the way down in verse 21, we'll just jump ahead real quick. You can look there in verse 21. Sheba is described as a man of the hill country of Ephraim. It's a phrase that's only found one other time in the book. In the very first verse of 1 Samuel, when we read that Samuel's father, Elkanah, was from the hill country of Ephraim. And so what the narrator wants us to see is that Sheba is a real person, but he represents for us and for the Israelites a desire to turn back from David, to turn away from the king, to turn away from the line of David and the son of Jesse. You guys understand what this feeling is like? I had a friend, I had multiple friends actually like this, who I used to play video games with, and any time we would get to a point where he was about to lose, you know what he would do? He wasn't an honorable man. He would go and he would shut off the system, right? He would just turn it off. Maybe some of your kids are like that. Some of you are like that, probably. You guys know what it's like. When things don't go the way we want, it's natural for us to want to just turn back, turn it off, quit. And this is simply an extension of our own desire to quit and turn away when things don't go the way we plan. And so in our spiritual lives, the character of Sheba reminds us that one of the responses that we often have naturally to disappointment and the unexpected and to struggle in this life is to turn away as well. In particular, if we are raised in the church or we are around the things of God, to turn away from God altogether. Now, what is insurrection? It's simply revolt, right? Rebellion, rising up against authority. And we see this in the Bible, but we also see it in our lives. You guys know we live in a time and day when this term deconstruction is more and more popular. Have you guys heard that? People deconstructing their faith, which is basically a term for questioning and rejecting the Bible and ultimately faith in Christ and God himself. And there are a lot of reasons for it. And if this is something that you're struggling with, we would like to help you. If we can, we'd love to talk to you about it. But we still need to understand what the Bible sees this as. It's insurrection. It's rebellion. It's a rejection of God and his rule for our own rule because we no longer are okay with God's plan and God's king. 
Now, like I said, there, there are intellectual reasons. Sometimes people go through this process. But the truth is that so often, rejecting the faith, rejecting God's way, is because in our hearts we want to do something that God said we can't. There's a desire to do what God says you must not do, or disillusionment with how God has let your life turn out, or anger and bitterness, even, that God has made you the way you are. I remember talking to a friend who grew up in the church, and, and it was so interesting to hear him say all these reasons why he did not believe in the Bible. He's saying, well, the virgin birth makes no sense. And, and all of these uh, prophecies and stuff, well, those are just things that were written post the, the fact, right? They knew what was going to happen. They wrote about it after it already happened. He was bringing up all of these scientific objections to the Christian faith. And at the end of it, he says, and yet I still hate God for making me this way. This is how we are as humans. It's okay to follow God. It's okay to follow Jesus until it doesn't go the way I expected. And so we turn our back on him. We rebel from him. We suppress the truth of God with a lie. We cannot seem to help but see God as a genie, a cosmic genie whose primary purpose to exist is to do the things we expect him to do. And so for so many in this world, like Sheba, even in the church, the answer they turn to is insurrection. And David recognizes how strong this desire is inside of people, and so he takes immediate action. In verse 4, then the king said to Amasa, the general who had replaced Joab, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. David knows, and the narrator knows, that the disappointments of life are fuel for the fire of insurrection. And so he says, we need to put it out while we can. He, he gets the army together. He says, we got to crush this now. It'll be worse than Absalom. More people will follow him if we don't stop this now. And that leads us then to the army of David and the second character we need to look at in this chapter. We've seen Sheba and how he embodied insurrection, but now we're going to move on to Joab, a character who shows us that sometimes our response to the unexpected is not insurrection, but insubordination. That's what Joab shows us here. Starting in verse 8, Joab enters the story, and Joab is a significant character in the book of Samuel. Okay, He is David's nephew. He is a general of David's armies, the general for most of the time that David is king, but he isn't a good guy per se. Okay, He's no boy scout, to put it lightly, he's the opposite. Uh, he's pretty bloodthirsty and pretty cold. And in many ways, Joab is the enforcer of David's kingdom, okay? Um, he's the one who helped kill Uriah. So you remember when he wanted to go kill Uriah, he sent a letter, a secret letter to Joab. And Joab is the one who, who quote-unquote, pulled the trigger. He's the one who did the dirty work. But he also did the dirty work for David even when David didn't ask him to, right? When David said, don't touch the boy Absalom, Joab went and he stabbed him like ten times in direct violation of the order. Joab was insanely loyal 
to the king. But he was uncontrollable. In last chapter, Joab was essentially demoted for killing Absalom when David had told him not to. And he was replaced by this man, Amasa, who was actually the general of the rebellious army. And so you can imagine how this sat with Joab. Knowing who he is, knowing his character, you can imagine how he felt that there was this new general in his place. And so I love the way the text reintroduces Joab. He shows up in verse 8, but even one verse before, verse 7, which we read, there is a clue. It says that these were Joab's men who went with Abishai. So the text is giving us clues that Joab has been demoted, but he is not close to being done. In verse 8, I'll read the text with you, and we'll read a larger section of it with a few explanations, just so we can kind of understand where the story is going, because it is fascinating and somewhat unexpected. Verse 8, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them, and he came with the rest of the Judah army. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward, it fell out. And so you can imagine he's wearing this normal soldier's garment. He has this, this, this kind of holster for his sword on the side. And as he's walking forward, he just kind of steps, maybe tr- tumbles, and it falls out of the sheath onto the ground. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard and his right hand to kiss him. And so the picture you need to have is of him going up to the new general. He's picked up his sword from the ground that had fallen out, but he's holding it in his left hand, just kind of inconspicuously, and he grabs this man who is actually his cousin. If you go through the family histories, he grabs Amasa by the beard to kiss him as they would in ancient days. But Amasa, verse 10, did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. He saw it, but he didn't understand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach. And he spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Job to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. It's a compelling scene. It's, like I said, a little bit unexpected if you were reading it for the first time or you had it in a while. Joab is loyal to David, fiercely so, but uncontrollable. And this text helps us understand something about Joab that maybe we didn't fully understand before. Is Joab a good or a bad guy? What would you say? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Well, like most of us, it's a mixture of both. But what exactly is the relationship between Joab and David? He's loyal. He'll never leave David's side. But what we see here is it doesn't mean he will obey In fact, this is exactly what the story shows. He is insubordinate, which means he is disobedient. He is still on the king's side, but he does whatever he wants. Joab doesn't want to be the king. Okay, Joab's not out there trying to become the new king of Judah, but he acts as the king over his own life when it suits him. And at the end of the day, Joab wants David to have the title of king, but he will do as he sees fit in a treacherous, cold-blooded way. With insubordination, Joab 
retakes his position as general. He defies his orders and his king with no regard to the consequences. Now, what is insubordination? It's just refusing to follow orders while still remaining, quote-unquote, on the right side. And it really isn't all that different from insurrection. It comes from the same heart. The only difference is that instead of outright rebelling, I'm just going to be here and be disobedient. Like Joab, one of the ways that we can respond to the unexpected is with insubordination. Now, how does that work? Have we seen it in our lives? I have in my own life, right? Knowing that I want to be in church, I want to experience the blessings of being in fellowship with God's people. I want to even know that I'm on the right side of history, so to speak. And yet, when it doesn't suit me, I do exactly what my flesh wants. And I've seen it in the church too as a pastor, the all too familiar story of an upstanding family in the church who would have never approved of abortion, who knows that it is wrong until their daughter got pregnant with the wrong kind of guy. And now they were sure it was the answer, of course, in secret. That's not a hypothetical situation. I've seen it, not here in Zoe, but I've seen it, and I'm sure it's been played out over and over again to the shame of God's so-called people. We can see how this response to insubordination tempts each of us when we experience the unexpected. It's easy to say, yeah, I'm on God's side. I'm going to do things God's way until God's way doesn't produce my results. Until the things I was hoping for don't show up on the doorstep the way that I had scheduled in advance. When we feel like God's commands and God's words get in the way of what we want. For many in the church, we become insubordinate. We become just like Joab. We give lip service to the king but we do what we want and when it suits us. So how do you respond to the unexpected? With disappointment, with disillusionment, do you respond with insubordination? What am I talking about? Well, God, because you allowed these intimacy problems into our marriage, then this sexual sin is justified. You did this to me. God, because of the stress I have, because I'm serving you, I'm exerting myself for your kingdom, then I deserve to relax in this way or I deserve to be selfish or I deserve to reject your word when it is just too hard. A friend once told me a story that I don't know for sure is true, but I believe it, that his buddy was working at a hotel when a local youth pastor's conference was in town and that weekend the orders for adult movie titles were the highest he had ever seen. I'm not here to disparage youth pastors right, or make you all scared. But I'm saying that what Joab does is meant to remind us of the hypocrisy of insubordination. To say we are for God's king and yet to do exactly what we want. The hope is that we would see Joab's actions and be shocked as the people were shocked in the text. Now if you look at the text, the story. Joab, he goes and he kills Amasa. He cuts him open. He's an expert killer. He just does it one shot, right? He doesn't need two slices. He kills him in the very first attack. And Amasa is literally in Hebrew rolling around in his blood on the road, right? It's not meant to be like a, a, a very um, a 
acceptable way of saying it. It's supposed to be gruesome. It's supposed to shock us. He's rolling in his blood on the road. And this is the point of this gruesomeness. Joab and Abishai, they run off after Sheba. There's a guy standing there who Joab set up to say, hey, if you are for David, then then go. Run after Joab and Abishai. Go be part of the army. But the people are walking by. And what happens? Every one of them stops and they see this. And they feel like this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. You know, for a long time when I would drive and I would uh, see an accident or something and there would be a lot of traffic, I would get annoyed. I'd be like, why are... Why are all the people stopping? Why is everyone stopping and rubbernecking? I don't know what I'm talking about. You're rubbernecking. Both sides of the freeway are stopping. I would get annoyed by it. And as I've gotten older and I've thought about it, I've softened a lot because if you think about it, shouldn't we slow down and stop when something like that happens? Shouldn't we see something that, like an accident and someone losing their life and be disturbed by it? That's what's going on in this passage. The people come by and they're disturbed. They're not just taking what this guy is saying at face value. He's saying, I'm for David. But Joab has disobeyed. He has slain Amasa, the general David had put in charge. They see Joab now for who he really is. And this description of the killing is meant to be gruesome. And and, and the way in which Joab and Abishai just kind of run off without even dealing with the body is meant to be somewhat perverse. To show us how gruesome and perverse this sort of insubordination and hypocrisy is. It stops the army in their tracks until the young man covers it up. Until he he pulls it away and covers it with a garment. See, the Bible and the story of David shows us that there is something very uniquely disturbing to God about a person who claims to be for him, but is insubordinate and disobedient to the word. That there is something worse than a sinner, which is a sinner who pretends that he isn't one. Who puts on the hypocrisy of self-righteousness, who says, I am for David, while he disobeys the king. And it's so poetic, right? So biblical, that Joab turns his back on the orders of King David by betraying someone else with a kiss. He acts like business as usual after his insubordination. And so at the end of this portion of the text, Joab is in charge. He's the one that everyone ends up following, but the text is very clear. He is not the kind of man you and I ought to be. He's just as worthless as Sheba, who he is pursuing. And so to kind of summarize where we've been, there are two ways we see in this text that people respond to the unexpected, to disappointments, and both of the ways are wrong and worthless. We can go to insurrection, to rebel against God. We can turn away from him, or we can be insubordinate. We can be content to to give lip service to God, but obey ourselves and to disobey the word when it suits us. The unexpected circumstances of life have a tendency to turn us into rebels or hypocrites. But of course, the chapter isn't over yet. There's still one more way, a third way, which we see in the final person this chapter shows us, this wise woman of the city of Abel Beth Makkah. This wise woman shows us that the right way to respond to disappointments and the unexpected and and all these things in life is not with insurrection, it's not with insubordination, but it is with insight. So let's read from verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. 
And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So here's what's going on. In case you're having a little bit of trouble tracking, Sheba tells all of Israel to go back to abandon David, to disconnect from the king in Jerusalem, and they listen. And as he's kind of going away, David sends the army after him to take care of this problem. And so Sheba is a fugitive. He's on the run. He goes up from Jerusalem through the tribes of Israel. He starts heading north from Jerusalem. And eventually he gets all the way up to the city of Abel of Beth Makkah, which if you don't know, which I'm assuming you don't, is at the very northern tip of the Israelite territory. So Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel, but Abel of Beth Makkah is all the way at the top. It's a long journey. He's gone through the whole land all the way to the end of the country. Now, uh, the text isn't that clear. Either one clan followed him, or maybe no one really followed him. But basically, he, he arrives at the city, and Joab shows up behind him. Joab shows up, and the city comes under siege. And, of course, this is not a good thing for the city. The text tells us that they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. And I imagine now that if you're thinking about this story in terms of the unexpected, the people of Abel of Beth Makkah are facing an unexpected circumstance. Just a week or two ago, everything's fine, right? David is the king. Things are going pretty well. Now, all of a sudden, this city in the very far tip of Israel has an army at their door about to wreck the town, tear down the wall, maybe kill them all as well. It's not what they would have expected, of course. The question is, how will they respond? And it's at this point that the narrator introduces us to this character, an unnamed wise woman. Verse 16, then a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Which is pretty ironic, he would say that. Um, that is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem, to the king. Now when I read this passage... My mind and your minds immediately went to the act of throwing this guy's head over the wall to Joab. Okay, it's the most memorable part of this story, um, and it is graphic. But we don't want to miss the lessons that this passage has for us about this wise woman. While there is a graphic scene here, what is emphasized about the woman that is different from the worthless Sheba and the dangerous Joab is her wisdom. 
The passage tells us over and over again. We need to see that, right? It says that she is a wise woman, that she approaches the people in her wisdom. And then she talks about how the city of Abel was known for its wisdom. That in ancient days, people would go there and they would go there for judgment. They would go to Abel to find out some wisdom, to get a situation resolved by the wisdom of the people who lived there. And so this wisdom has a huge part to play in this story. Now, what wisdom do we see here? Well, you might think that her wisdom is that it's better to give up this one traitor than to lose the entire city. And that's part of it, right? In fact, the Jewish rabbis, they would look at this story and they would say, this is a case study in how we determine the morality of giving up one to save the many, right? What are you supposed to do? Is it right or wrong to to sacrifice one person for the good of everyone else? Those are legitimate thoughts. Maybe you read this story and you have something in your mind along the lines of it being better to enter into heaven with one hand and one foot and one eye than to go into hell whole like Jesus talked about, right? There, there are legitimate applications of that. But what is her wisdom in this text? That's what I want to focus on. I think the key to seeing that is in how she speaks to Joab in verse 19. Look at that with me. She says, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Now, what is she talking about? About the city being a mother in Israel. Well, she's talking about how this city is an old city. A city that was there from a long time ago, and most likely that means it was a city that God had given to the people of Israel when they had conquered the land under Joshua. And she says it here, why will you swallow up the heritage or the inheritance of the Lord? If you read this passage, she's the only one who's talking about the Lord at all. And what we see in this short exchange is that this woman, like any truly wise person, sees this situation in light of the Lord. In light of the fear of the Lord. She is fundamentally different than Sheba and Joab. She's not thinking about political realities here. She's not thinking about the personal setback. She's not even thinking about the physical danger of this army at her doorstep first. She's thinking about what is the Lord doing? And that's the question we need to ask. Right? You're in an unexpected situation and, and all these things seem to be crumbling around you and things are happening that you thought would never happen. The question we need to ask is, what is the Lord doing? If you're a Christian, you need to ask that question. What is God doing? Because God is not a God who is wasteful of his time and our time. He's not a God who gets taken by surprise by the things that happen. He is doing something, and this woman understands that. As she speaks with Joab, this is what she relates to him. This city is a heritage not mine and not just the people here, and it doesn't belong to you either. It belongs to God. She's on a different wavelength from Sheba and Joab. Her thoughts are for the well-being of her city, yes, but she sees what is happening in the context of what God is doing. In the face of this situation, this wise woman has the insight, the knowledge to remember that behind all of this that's happening, God is in control. The Lord is the one who gave him the city. The Lord is the one who is still on the throne. The land is the land of his promise. The city belongs not to Joab, not even to David, but to God. 
And the way to deal with this unexpected situation is to have the insight to remember that God is in control. In the same way, I conclude that when the woman went to her people in her wisdom to tell them to cut off Sheba's head and throw it over the wall, she reminded them of it. This city is ours by the gift of the Lord. So if you were thinking about joining Sheba, or you were thinking about getting into this rebellion against David, he is the Lord's chosen king. And so we must submit to him. And so they throw the head over, and at the end of the passage, we see that Joab blows the trumpet and sends every man home, as Sheba had done in the beginning, bringing this chapter to an end and inviting us to consider what the end of David's reign really means. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, this isn't what I expected? Are you in the situation now? Maybe in your marriage? Not understanding that how this gap between you occurred? Maybe in your singleness? Wondering why things are the way they are for so long in your eyes. The last chapter of David's official reign invites us to face the reality that we all will deal with the unexpected. None of us is going to come to Christ and then the rest of our lives till glory goes exactly the way we would have hoped and planned. Right? It sounds so simple. It sounds like that that's 101. We should all know that, and yet it seems like it's so hard for us to accept. We have this vision of what things should look like, how, how God should work in our lives, how the people around us should respond, and yet when it doesn't go that way, we are broken and crushed. How will we respond to that? The, the reign of David, the chosen king, shows us that's the way God works. He works through those things. And so we don't respond with rebellion or disobedience, but with faith-filled fear the Lord, living in light of who he is, knowing, being convinced that he is at work, knowing that he is in charge, and then looking for what he is doing in his program, even in the unexpected, always in the unexpected, God is at work. Nothing about this reign of David's would have been what Samuel or Saul or David or Absalom or Sheba or Joab would have expected. They're all just human. But God was still in charge. And as Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so again, we think about our lives. We need to understand if the God we say we worship is only worthy of our trust when things go according to our plan, well, then he's too small a God. And if God is only worth trusting when things are going good, then that's not the God of the Bible. And if God is only worth obeying and worshiping when he does the things that I want, then that is no God at all. The God that the Bible presents is, is so big, so in control, so sovereign, even over your sin, even over mine, even over the things that, that are a result of, of, of wrong in this world, even over the things that seem so big and out of our control, they are never out of his control. This is what the author of 2 Samuel wants us to know. Of all the things that we've read, 
of all the things we know about David, of the ways in which he is a man worth emulating, it was never about how great David was. It was never his victories that were most important. It was the promises he received from God that mattered most and the fact that he was part of God's plan to bring to this world a Savior, an ultimate King in Jesus. God's program to deliver Israel and the world, not just from earthly enemies, but from the wages of sin and death. This reign of David was never truly about him in the first place. It was always about the Lord, who alone is the King of kings. So brothers and sisters, if you are disappointed with your life, or disappointed with the world, or just confused, it must not lead to disappointment with God. But greater faith and hope that what we truly need will only be found in his plan in his expectations, and in his rule. How will you respond? Through turning away from the Lord and his king? By rejecting Jesus? By trying to go back? Will you respond by insubordination, by doing things your way when God's way doesn't feel good enough? By living in a hypocrisy or by insight, by trusting in God and obeying him and submitting to the only true and perfect king. But our God is still on the throne. That's something we can put in the bank. If you're having trouble believing it, then as Christians, we need to turn our eyes to Jesus. See, when Jesus came to this earth, he showed us who God was. And, and if you think about it, uh, he, he gave to us a picture of God's perfect character and authority And he also showed us God's sovereign power to take what was intended for evil, things that that seemed so wrong, and turn them into good. The people who Jesus rejected, or the people who Jesus came to, rejected him. They despised him. They did not esteem him. And if you guys remember the story of Jesus, when he came, the people hated him for not being the kind of Messiah they wanted. They were expecting a, a king of this earth, and yet Jesus said his kingdom was not of the earth. When he was arrested, the people he came to save shouted, We have no king but Caesar. They turned their backs on him. When he was crucified, they pierced his side with a spear. And when he was praying in the garden, one of his own came to betray him with that kiss. And yet when he died on the cross, the Bible says Jesus put to death the record of our insurrections and our insubordinations and all the sins we might commit against the Lord. He put them to death on the cross. He rose again victorious from the grave. And he showed us that he is truly the King of kings. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so this afternoon, if you're dealing with the unexpected, that huge, big truth has got to be where you start. With Jesus, who remains King and God, even over the unexpected. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you again this afternoon, and and we know maybe there's nothing that was said that was new this afternoon. Nothing said that we shouldn't already know. It got it so easy for us to shrink our view of you down to 
the size that makes sense to us. And yet in doing so, Lord, we lose the peace of knowing that we can trust in a God who is always at work and is always on the throne, even when we are faced with disappointments and disillusionment and trials of the unexpected. And so, God, we pray At this time, Lord, whatever we might be going through, I ask, Lord, that you would help us by your Spirit to lift those things up to you. Help us, Lord, to see in the reign of King David and the end of it, Lord, that that there is no hope apart from you. That there is no fooling you with hypocrisy, but for those who place their faith in you alone, who have the insight to know that that is the way that we can experience the security and the hope that you alone can give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.